0: Welcome back to Trennus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is use every eighth episode of this podcast to talk about Smallville. Now, about a year and a half ago, or maybe like two years ago, I guess, I, I began yammering about Smallville Phase 2. Because if you were so inclined, you could view the first three seasons of the show as Smallville Phase 1. And Smallville Phase 2 starts with the dreaded fourth season, and then goes right on through to the end of the sainted seventh season. And today, I'm continuing coverage of the sixth season, which is to say, Smallville's shippiest season. But, before we get going into the blood and guts of this week's show, I need to give you guys a little bit of a disclaimer. The second segment that you're about to hear is where I talk about this week's batch of Smallville episodes. Now, in a perfect world, I would have remixed the the second segment so that it sounds better. I'm always trying to improve my skills and audacity, and the second segment, guys, I'm going to be honest with you, sounds pretty clunky. And I wish I could make it better. But unfortunately, I can't really remix it. And the reason I can't remix it is, it's because the Audacity file that I would normally use for that, you know, the Audacity file I use to create the second segment, is just fucking gone. Alright? No idea what happened, but it went bye-bye. So, the second segment isn't mixed very well, at least as compared to the mixing that I do these days, but that's not the only problem, y'all. The other problem is that the second segment is sourced from an mp3 file. Now, without getting lost in too much technical detail, what I usually do is create WAV files of both segments, drop those WAV files into a new Audacity project, and then make an mp3 out of that. The idea being that each WAV file for each segment, it's only going to be encoded into an mp3 once. But I can't do that here because the original uh, Audacity file is gone, like I say. So all I can use is an mp3 of the second segment, and so the second segment is going to get encoded into an mp3 twice. So my point here is to ask all of you to just indulge me this one time and just try to forgive the shaky sound quality of the second segment. Going forward, I don't think this is going to be a problem again, at least I hope but I guess you never know. So anyway, now I could fix all that stuff if I really needed to. Because I have the raw audio file I use to record myself and so I could rebuild everything from that. But if I do that, I basically have to rebuild the entire fucking segment completely from scratch. And guys, I have neither the time nor the inclination to do that. But anyway, to finally start talking about Smallville, By this point in the show's run, it'd be fair to say that the characters have all covered a lot of ground. In the first season, Clark usually did the right thing at the right time and for the right reasons. His instincts and judgment were raw, but they were pretty much always flawless. Largely, his conscience led him in the right direction. But in the second season, he sometimes made bonehead decisions. He often struggled against his own infa- uh, his own fallibility. During the Mighty Season 3, Clark's judgment was as shaky as it had ever been, but for the first time, others were beginning to experience the consequences of his actions. The dreaded Season 4 marked the beginning of Smallville Phase 2, and while the dreaded fourth season is bad overall, it did at least showcase Clark's growing sense of independence. Like I said just a second ago, he made a lot of mistakes in the second season, and he made more mistakes in the Mighty third season. And then he had to live with the consequences of those decisions. So by the time the dreaded season four got underway, he was finally coming into a stage in life when he'd seen himself at his worst and at his best. He understood that he has to make decisions that literally nobody else can. And nobody else can help him either. Not really. And so, for everything else that I could say about the dreaded fourth season, and there's a lot, most of which isn't good, at least Clark learned that his judgment is as fallible as anybody else's, and he's still the only one who can make the decisions that he has to make. Clark learned in the fifth season that the bad guy He's not always going to pimp into the scene with superpowers and making trouble for everybody. Sometimes the bad guy might have diplomatic immunity. Sometimes the bad guy might teach history classes in college. And sometimes the bad guy is the CEO of Luther Court. Good and evil don't always wear easy and convenient labels. The bad guys don't always wear black hats. And the good guys don't necessarily wear white hats, either. The fifth season demonstrated that Clark might be getting older, but he wasn't truly growing up. At least, not in the ways that he needs to. He's very much attached to the life that he's had on the Kent farm. One might say, maybe too attached. Here in the sixth season, which is to say Smallville's shippiest season, Here in the sixth season so far, Clark's met Oliver Queen, and this has already demonstrated itself to be one of Clark's most important relationships on this entire series. Clark had to set Oliver straight about some stuff. Look, if you want to help people, that's fine. But stealing from other people isn't going to fly. Not when Clark's around. Clark is helping Ollie. But it'd be fair to say that Ollie's going to be helping Clark now. And also in the future. One of Smallville's most crucial uh, relationships was established with Clark and Oliver starting to come to terms with one another. And those chickens are gonna start coming home to roost in justice, which I'll talk about in the second segment in this episode. But guys, that's not all. In the episode Zod, Clark inadvertently freed several prisoners of the phantom zone and in the episode wither which i talked about in a previous retrospective he resolved not only uh, he resolved not to rest until all of the zoners were put back where they belong then and only then now guys you need to understand this is a big step for clark in smallville like previous seasons of smallville he was mostly reactive to threats if trouble came knocking, he'd knock back, but mostly he stayed out of the way and minded his own business. But that's starting to change right here in season six, Smallville's shippiest season. This subplot about the zoners is gonna be this shippiest season's story arc, and it forms a major part of Clark's growth and development toward becoming Superman. What we're seeing in this shippiest season is Al Goff and Miles Miller kind of broadening the canvas of the show. They only are—they originally only intended for Smallville to run for five seasons, so anything beyond that was going to have to require Goff and Miller to create new stories, new relationships, and develop new concepts to propel the show into whatever the future might bring. It'd be fair to say that the tone of Smallville has shifted dramatically. The first season was relatively grounded and some might say, relatively realistic. But that's not the case anymore. Season 2 was slightly more fantasy-oriented. The Mighty Season 3 was slightly more fantasy-oriented as compared to Season 2. So on and so on and so on. And so, by the time you get to Season 6, Smallville's shippiest season, Goff and Miller were very deep into science-fantasy types of territory. Not as, the, not as deep as the show would ultimately get, you understand, but at least for the first time, Smallville was operating in a sense of internal reality where seeing somebody wear a superhero outfit, that's not necessarily a foreign concept anymore. Part of the shift, as I've alluded to a few times now, is movement toward m- more theatrical types of relationships. And boy, there are a lot of those kinds of relationship relationships to choose from During this shippiest season, you've got Lex and Lana, Clark and Lana, Lois and Ollie, Chloe and Jimmy, Martha and Lionel, and others. This could be the only season in Smallville's entire run where we can be pretty sure that pretty much all of the characters are nursing crushes, or for that matter, nurturing actual relationships with other characters on the show. Smallville's always been a teen drama type of show, but this shippiest season features tons of ships. There'd never been this many ships going on in the show before, and there never really would be again either. We are reaching peak ships here, people. And honestly, this dovetails kind of nicely with the lighter and more fantasy-oriented tone that the show is trying to pursue at this time. As Smallville seasons go, Season 6, Smallville's shippiest season, is something of a love it or leave it uh, type of season, but guys, I'm gonna be honest with you and say that I think that history has been ridiculously kind to this season that we're working through right now. That's an opinion that I plan to justify as we move along through all these different episodes, but in the here and now, last time I finished up my comments with Episode 8, Static. And you know what that means. It's time for a break. Be right back to resume the discussion about Smallville Season 6 beginning with Episode 9, Subterranean, after these messages.
1: Comic books, mythology, video games, toys, Star Wars, just about any geeky topic you can think of could be covered on The Hammer Podcast, presented by two true freaks. Come join me, Gene Hendricks for whatever my disjointed mental processes can come up with. And be careful, or you might just learn something before we're done. The Hammer Podcast is available monthly, both on its own iTunes feed and at 2TrueFreaks.com.
0: Discussion about season six, Smallville's shippiest season. Episode nine, Subterranean. In this episode, Smallville gets political. Illegal immigration is good, so it's our responsibility to help people break the law as much as possible. Now, look, I'll get to the ugly stuff in just a sec, but I'm going to work backwards here and say that Lex plays a classical music piece on his piano toward the end of the episode, and as best I can tell, it's a piece called The Impromptus, and I really dug it. Now, as to the unpleasant stuff... Look, originally I was very close to invoking the, the clause from Stray, the first season episode where I say, I don't like this episode, and just move on to the next episode. It was very tempting. But here's the thing. I'm sick and fucking tired of running away from this issue. Now, I've always tried to avoid getting partisan on my show, and the reason for that should be obvious, but in case it's not... It's because there's nothing that you can say about most political issues that isn't gonna alienate somebody. No matter where you come down on any political issue, there's a good chance that somebody out there is gonna feel the complete opposite way about it. All you usually succeed in doing when you try that is pissing somebody off. And here's the thing. Nobody listens to me or to my show so that they can hear someone grind political axes. This show's supposed to be about comics, movies, and TV shows. But the problem with that is that there are circumstances where comics, movies, or TV shows themselves get political. And there are times when, like with Subterranean, where it's not just political, it's specifically partisan. So even though i might not want to go there just on my you know on my own terms clearly some creative people do and then i'm stuck dealing with it here now part of the reasons that i do these retros or rather part of the reason that i do these retrospectives is to talk about smallville any creative storytelling is built on ideas and obviously there are times when that takes us into partisan territory this bothers you, take it up with the Smallville crew who's responsible for this episode because I'm not the one who's bringing it up here. They are. Don't like it? Send them your angry emails. Now, on that basis, allow me to say that I've never heard a coherent argument in favor of illegal immigration. Now, I realize that a political party out there supports illegal immigration because those illegal immigrants tend to support them at the ballot box. And I also realized that big business loves illegal immigration because it equals cheap labor for them. Now, guys, I'm going to put all of this on pause and say that when I first started planning these Smallville retrospectives, I knew that there was a chance that I might decide to talk about this episode and that if I did, I was gonna have to say a lot of this stuff. And at the time that I devised this plan, you have to understand, Donald Trump had not announced that he was gonna run for president. So I had no idea this was gonna happen. So these arguments may be familiar to you. And if they are, I apologize. But number one, it's not gonna last much longer. And number two, I'm probably gonna say something that I don't think you've heard from very many other sources before. Patience. Anyway, here's the thing. When illegal immigrants come to this country, they have no rights, none whatsoever. They have no protection under the law. If they get injured on the job, they can get fired without their employer ever having to face the music. Illegal immigrants mostly don't want to do anything that puts them on the radar of any law enforcement agencies, so if they get injured on the job or off, they may very well refuse to seek medical treatment, but. Even if they can avoid injury, they still have no long-term career prospects. Illegal immigrants tend to mostly work in manual labor, and there's no real hope for them, or even their children, in most cases, to do anything other than manual labor. But they come to America, and in exchange for the vague promise of potential citizenship someday, maybe, they get exploited by big business and basically worked to death. Meanwhile, politicians get to look compassionate for helping them into the country in the first place. And guys, that's fucking slavery. And the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution abolished slavery in this country. Now, if you take these exact same people and move them into the country on a legal basis, they're going to have legal protection so that if they get screwed over in their job, they can file lawsuits and maybe even get their labor union involved if they belong to one. They'll have all the rights and privileges that a citizen would have. But don't kid yourself. You're not compassionate for wanting to condemn somebody to a life of bondage and slavery. And that's exactly what illegal immigration is. Anybody who says otherwise is either lying or running for re-election. And possibly both. Now, invariably, when you say these types of things, some dumb son of a bitch out there wants to call you a racist. Yeah, because it's racist to care about what happens to other people. It's racist to want people to come to this country so that they can be protected by the same laws that I am. It's racist to resent big business for exploiting human beings. Now... I'm not the racist here. I'm the guy who sees illegal immigrants work themselves to death all the time so that politicians can be re-elected and big business can make a few extra bucks. I'm not the racist guy here. The people who don't see a problem with the return of slavery in the United States in the form of illegal immigration, they are the fucking racists. Now, i picked on big business quite a bit here. Don't misunderstand me. I believe in the free market. And honestly, that's the exact point. Illegal immigration isn't part of the free market. The market's supposed to be guided by, among other things, the laws of supply and demand. If a con- if a construction company wants to build a house, they're going to have certain costs in doing so. And in the free market, laws of supply and demand will guide how much they can charge for a building or a house or skyscraper, or just whatever it is that they're going to make. But the minute you introduce illegal immigration into the equation, that construction company has a way to underbid competitors who obey the law. Guys, that's not a free market. That's a slave market. There's nothing wrong with immigration as long as it's legal immigration. As I say, I believe in the free market. And that includes the marketplace of nation states and citizens, chip. I'm pro-profit. I'm pro-business. Hell, there's a degree to which I'm even pro-big business, but profit is never, ever more important than people. Human beings have got to come first. Otherwise, we're all just slave owners to varying degrees. Oh, and one other bullshit argument that I hear all the time, Superman is not the ultimate illegal immigrant. For one thing, Clark Kent is a citizen of this country. For two things, if you really want to go by the letter of the law, Superman would qualify for refugee status. So take idiotic arguments like that outside, if you don't mind. <sighs> All right, so now that I've probably offended everybody in the room, let's leave the politics aside and just get down to brass tacks. Lex proposed to Lana back in static, but she haven't. She hasn't given him an answer yet, so he tells her to take her time to make a decision. <sighs> Look, I realize this is supposed to be a sensitive thing for a guy to say or some other fucking bullshit, but honestly, when you ask somebody to marry you, it should be because you've both already talked about it and you know what she's going to say, or at least you've got a pretty good idea. If you truly don't know what her answer is going to be, my advice is to save your money on engagement rings until you do. On top of that, I tend to have a kind of binary view of these types of things. If you ask someone to marry you, there are two possible answers. One of them is yes, and the other one is no. And if her answer is anything other than yes, she's saying no, and no means no. Right? Also, this isn't something you should have to invest a lot of time and thought in. Do you want to marry that person? It shouldn't take more than a few seconds to figure out the answer, assuming you've known this person for any length of time. And if it does take you that long, then don't date anybody until you've got the balls to commit. Don't be wishy-washy. That's for bratty, emo, self-absorbed fucking teenagers. All of this is my way of saying that scenes like this always piss me off when I see them in movies and and shows and stuff because it suggests there's something serious or heavy-duty, critical thinking that goes into the simple fucking question, will you marry me? Say yes, or say no. Either way, speak the fuck up already. But this is how you build drama in a TV show, while at the same time embellishing the conflict that Lana's feeling over her relationship with Lex, and that's ultimately the issue here. And the scene where Lex points out that Lana hasn't given him an answer yet is supposed to establish that Lana has concerns and doubts about her relationship with Lex, but I mean, at the same time, she still likes him and she wants to be with him. And you know, that shit all makes sense. I'm just saying that this isn't how relationships are supposed to be. And it kind of pisses me off to see idiotic bullshit like this on TV. And look, don't get me wrong. It's it's not that I think the whole Lex Lana relationship is bad writing. When I talked about Fragile from the fifth season, what I said was, Finally, Lana pays a visit to Lex's office and they kiss a few times. <sighs> Alright. Guess I'll go ahead and talk about
1: it. On to the sort of fucked up, deeper themes and implications. Lana has reasons for turning to Lex.
0: As I said before, superficially, he's been more upfront and honest with her. He's included her in his search for the spaceship from arrival, his investigation of and partnership with Milton Fine, and tons of other things. Understand, Lana knows that Clark's keeping something from her. Probably several somethings, in fact. She knows them. She knows when Clark is stonewalling her, and lately he's been doing that a lot combine all that shit with his erratic behavior and you can see why lex just might be more appealing to her plus let's face it she has to know just how pissed off and hurt clark's gonna be
1: when he finds out
0: about her and lex as for lex You know, it's funny how both Luthers are taking advantage of recent misfortunes for their own purposes. Jonathan Kent's death has given Lionel the best shot he's ever had with Martha, and he's making the most of it with every chance he gets.
1: Same thing for Lex.
0: He knows that Clark Kent truly broke Lana's heart this time. And not to put too fine a point on it, she's of age now. This is the best chance that Lex might ever get, and he knows it. Now, they say that Lex's attraction to Lana was hinted at back in Metamorphosis from Season 1, where Lex spies Lana from afar, and then takes a bite off an apple. For sure, it was very heavily suggested back in Jinx from The Dreaded Season 4, where Lex arranged to have Jason Teague fired from Smallville High, because he discovered he and Lana were in a relationship together. And even Clark didn't buy that Lex did it for moral reasons. All the hints, suggestions, and allegations about Lex's possible interest in Lana end this season, though. Lex's attraction to her has been pretty fucking explicit ever since Lexmas, and lest anybody be tempted to consign that to dreams, let's kiss Lana back in Reckoning, in both timelines. And lest anybody be tempted to consign that to being drunk, he kisses her again, right here in Fragile. And yes, Lana once again runs out of his office. But, not before kissing him again herself. This, of course, raises the question of just what the hell Lex sees in law. And people, I'll be honest, for years, I didn't understand. It's only been since I started re-watching this stuff for this retrospective that it all hit me. Lex wants to be Clark. Lex envies everything that Clark does wants everything that Clark has, all that stuff, so, in other words, Lex is the consummate older brother. It doesn't matter that Lex has seen more ass than a public toilet seat, he wants what Clark has. The biggest prize of all for him is Lana. And it's not because of Lana's merits as a person, either. Lex long ago objectified Lana. She's an item. She's something to be possessed. She's just something that you mark off on the inventory. In fact, in a sick, twisted kind of way, you have to wonder if Lex doesn't want to refashion his shrine under Clark as Lana's bedroom. Lex's Kent Museum is, after all, incomplete without Lana, right? Lex doesn't love Lana. He loves the idea of her. Swooping in on Clark's ex-girlfriend would be the highlight of Lex Luthor's life. So when you come right down to it, beyond the implicit creepy factor of Lex eyeing Lana back when she was a freshman at high school, his fascination with her is fucking twisted because it necessarily requires her to be Clark Kent's, shall we say, leftovers. Ultimately, Lex and Lana as a couple completely revolve around Clark Kent. Lex wants to be Clark, and Lana wants to hurt Clark. It's logical that she and Lex would never have been interested in each other if it wasn't for each of their relationships with Clark. Now, don't get me wrong. I've seen some unhealthy relationships before, but damn. There's nothing at all normal and healthy about the Lex-Lana relationship. It's not real. They don't really love each other. There's a moment in that scene where they kiss a little bit, and then they hug, after which both of them show that neither of them truly loves the other, and they both know it. Both of them are thinking about Clark in their own ways right now, and they have been all along. Clark is the foundation of their relationship. The Lex Lana relationship is sick, twisted, ten different kinds of fucked up, and also some really solid writing. So, believe me, it's not that I have a problem with them being in a relationship, it's just that I hate, hate, fucking hate. Scenes like that where some dude tells some chick to take all the time she needs. It's fucking bullshit. Speaking of relationship stuff, though, Jimmy's convinced that Clark hates his guts because he's with Chloe and Clark isn't. Basically, Jimmy's really misinterpreted a few things. But has he? It's hard to say. Back in Wither, Clark definitely gave off a few jealousy vibes. I mean, this is Smallville's shippiest season after all. In fact, when I was talking about Wither, what I said was, Moving on to other things, though, as as I've said, said, this this is definitely Smallville's shippiest shippiest season, so I guess it's fitting fitting that Clark spends the first couple of episodes episodes this season maybe not pining for Chloe exactly, exactly, but kind of hoping for something. And this is a change, a change of pace, pace, yeah, but, at, at the same, same time, it's not like it came out of nowhere, and, for that matter, it's not like it's not going somewhere, either. After years of a strictly platonic friendship, friendship Chloe, Chloe kissed, kissed Clark on the mouth back in Vessel. And, not to spoil anything, but that little plot point gets revisited, revisited later. A little bit. What I'm saying here is... There's justification for Clark to give Chloe another look. It wasn't something that was done just to stir up the Clark and Chloe ships. Clark's reasoning here? It kind of makes sense. He's lost a lot lately, not least of which is one. So, he's given Chloe another look. And so, imagine his disappointment when he finds out that she's with Jimmy. I'm I'm not not saying saying it's logical. I'm I'm just just saying saying that it rings true. Still, it's interesting that Jimmy doesn't get immediately all territorial here. Some people handle this better than others, but the fact is, no matter how laid back a guy might be, sooner or later, he's gonna have an opinion about it if he truly believes that some other guy that his girlfriend is already friend-zoned is still chasing after him. Jimmy's response to this is to reach out in friendship to Clark. Yeah, it's a little... He's a little cheesy about it, but he's not... He's seriously not looking for trouble. He's also not throwing his balls around and getting all possessive of Chloe here in Subterranean either. He invites Clark to play basketball with him sometime. I mean... We've all known somebody who'd beat some other guy with a chair in this kind of situation, but... Jimmy doesn't even try to be aggressive about it. He just tries to be friendly and diplomatic. And yeah, he was a little cheesy, but hey, points for handling what he thought was a problem in a pretty mature way. The real conflict here comes at the end of Subterranean between Clark and Lana. Clark.
1: I thought you were in Amsterdam. I'm back. Uh, is your mom around? No, she's in Topeka. Um, well, I brought by some paperwork for her. Should I leave it in the house? That's all right, I'll take it. I'll make sure she gets it. Uh, this must be pretty important if you're hand-delivering it yourself. Luther Corp wants to sponsor the residency of the workers on your neighbor's farm. They'll all be given jobs at the plant. You realize the only reason Lex is doing this is to wash his hands of it. Lex had no idea what was going on on that farm. Lana, you don't believe that. Unlike some people I know, Lex doesn't lie to me. Or he just wants his name clear of murder and slavery. So he sends a messenger to do his cleanup work.
0: I'm not Lex's
1: messenger, Clark. This was my idea. Resent the fact that you think I'm some puppet that he can manipulate. No, I didn't mean it like that. That's exactly what you meant.
0: Lana's got a point of view on this. Clark lies to her, she doesn't know why, she doesn't know about what, and she's sick of trying to figure it out. As far as she knows, Clark won't come clean with her. And as far as she knows, Lex, he doesn't keep major things from her it doesn't matter that she doesn't understand the entire situation. It doesn't matter that she's wrong about Lex. What matters is how Lana sees the situation. Remember, guys, she's never wrong about the way she feels. And right now, Lana feels accepted by Lex. Now, Clark has fewer and fewer illusions about Lex with each passing day, but Lana has good reasons for keeping the faith right now. And aside from that, She wants to believe the best about Lex. So between what Lana thinks are the facts and also the way that she feels, nothing's going to change her mind here. The conflict between Clark and Lana adds up. Now, I realize that people get sick of confrontations between Clark and Lana. The attitude seems to be that they'll all run together. All of these arguments, they're all the same. Lana's always pissed off about something or other, and so she's always picking on Clark. And I totally understand that. Hell, I even agree with it in a lot of cases. But at the same time, it's not true of Lana every single time. There are instances when she has her own point of view on something, and that puts her at odds with Clark. There are times when they have a very believable difference of opinion, and that's what happens here. For as much as a lot of elements of subterranean bug the hell right out of me, the episode ends with one of the most famous closing uh, sequences in Smallville's entire history, with Lex strolling through the corridors of level 33.1. And to me? I don't know. I just don't like that song Prelude 1221 by AFI. I'm not really sure what would have been better, to be honest. Maybe... I don't know. Maybe some kind of instrumental metal or heavy rock music or something. I don't know. But that soft rock with strings shit, I I don't know. It, it just didn't work for me is what I'm saying. Now, don't get me wrong. I really enjoy the moment. It's a good little character piece for Lex where we're reminded just what a fucking liar he is, and that stuff's fine. Usually, I don't talk about the pop songs from Smallville. In fact, now that I now that I say it out loud, I honestly can't remember the last time that I talked about any of the pop songs, but this one just annoyed me. If you enjoy it, great, I'm happy for you, but this song is like nails on a chalkboard for me. Anyway, episode 10, Hydro. Lana still hasn't given Lex an answer about his marriage proposal, which, in short order, becomes national fucking news and Clark's stuck right in the middle. Meanwhile, Lois is starting to think Oliver's the green arrow and conscripts Clark into helping her prove it. You know, it always shocks the hell out of people when I tell them that I love Hydro. I mean, I've said again and again that Season 6 is where Smallville transcended its genre and it, I mean, it, look, it started off as a teen drama with superpowers. It began slowly moving away from that beginning in season two. But season six is, is where it makes the, the jump to being more of a fantasy-based soap opera. Now, don't get me wrong. Smallville isn't as fantasy-based as in season six as it's going to be later on. But this is where the real transition took place, if you ask me. Now, that label is morally offensive to some comic book fans because they've never been totally comfortable with the similarity between soap operas and comic books. But if you live in denial of that reality, my hunch is that you probably don't enjoy Smallville's sixth season, but I do enjoy it. I enjoy season six, and I really enjoy Hydra. So let's start with the obvious stuff. Yes, 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 Tori Spelling is the guest star in this episode, and yes, 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 she's a little over the top. Truth is, she brings a ton of theatrical Velveeta to this thing, and I gotta tell you, that works for the material and for the style that Smallville's dealing with right now. Linda Lake would have stuck out like a sore thumb if she'd popped up back in the first season, or even the fifth one for that matter, but she's right at home here in the sixth season. Her performance and her character are totally of a piece with what season six is all about. The other thing is, look, I've never been attracted to Tori Spelling. I first saw her in Saved by the Bell, and then I saw her again along with the rest of America in Beverly Hills 90210. And, like I say, she's never really done it for me, but something about her look and Hydro. I don't know, I just think she's kind of hot. Other stuff. Lana tells Chloe that if Clark had proposed to her, she would have said yes without hesitating, but. In the first timeline of Reckoning from the fifth season, Clark proposed and Lana didn't say yes right away. Now, you can no-prize this easily enough. Lana had just found out that Clark is an alien when he proposed in that alternate timeline from Reckoning. And frankly, that's a lot for anybody to take in. Lana's hesitation there could be drawn straight back to just finding out that he was an alien, but that's not the timeline that we're dealing with right now. Right now, Lana knows Clark's keeping a secret, but alien origins and superpowers just aren't on her radar right now. And right now, Lana thinks that Clark is just a regular guy, and so based on that, she tells Chloe that she would have said yes if Clark had proposed without a moment's hesitation. The other thing is, though, that in that first timeline from Reckoning, it's made pretty clear that Clark told Lana to give it some thought before giving him an answer. And the truth is, she only needed a couple of hours before she turned up on his doorstep uh, to say, hey, how's it going? By the way, I love you. Yeah, sure, we should totally get married and stuff. What she told Chloe wasn't wrong And this is my point. What she told Chloe wasn't wrong, even if it wasn't totally factually correct. Not that it matters. In the end, Lana accepts Lex's marriage proposal. Now, when I was talking about Fallout from earlier this season, I said,
1: Well, Well, I have have to say say that that one gripe that that I do have about Fallout is... is... The establishing shot of Metropolis when Lana meets Dr. Grohl,
0: and how that was taken directly from Batman Begins, it's just, it's always bugged me.
1: For some reason,
0: the borrowed footage from Batman and Robin from the episode Zod just isn't really offensive to me at all, but the Batman Begins thing just irks me. I don't know why. But it does, and I don't think we've seen the last of it either. Well, here you go the first thing we even see in Hydro is an establishing shot of The Narrows from Batman Begins. And we we even see a different one immediately after the opening credits. And then as now, it just bugs the fuck out of me. Anyway. Hydro is a pretty target-rich environment as far as deeper themes and implications are concerned. Now, It gets no credit for that, but it's true. First, there's the obvious fact that Lana still has a thing for Clark, and clearly the feeling's mutual. It's definitely mutual. To a point, anyway. What's interesting, though, is how adversarial Lex and Clark are with each other. Now, don't get me wrong. They've been adversarial with one another in the past. This ain't the first time. It's not even the first time that they've been adversarial with Lana, but this is the first time that Clark's gone straight for the jugular with Lex. Usually, Clark keeps his comments... Uh, I'm trying to think of the best way. Basically, he, he restricts all of this basically to suspicions, and even more than that, to things that he could or would be able to prove in a court of law, if possible. It's usually about Lex's business practices or questionable ethics. But Hydro's the first time that Clark verbally punches Lex in the balls on a personal level. It must
1: be eating at you that she's hesitating, wondering why she hasn't given you an answer. I guess it would. If I didn't know what the answer was going to be. See, I highly doubt she'll say no, Clark. Now that she's carrying my child.
0: And obviously, Lex fires right back by informing Clark that Lana's pregnant. Clark said what he said, only to hurt Lex, and Lex returned the favor with interest. This marks a new low in their personal relationship. Like I said, Clark and Lex usually caricature each other when they have these little uh, confrontations. Lex calls Clark a goody-goody, while Clark sets up Lex as the Antichrist. Thrust, Perry, thrust, Perry, but this time, they both make personal digs against each other. Before now, you could argue that they might still be able to somehow rebuild their friendship. That things could go back to normal. Hydro's the first time, though, where we get the sense there's no going back. They really will be enemies for the rest of their lives now. And here's the thing. I just quoted myself a while ago on what drives Lex and Lana's relationship, and specifically that Clark is right there in the thick of it. Lana wants to hurt Clark. Lex wants to be Clark. Lex and Lana are with each other only because of Clark. It's funny how after all their differences, all their battles, all their conflicts, what really drove Clark and Lex apart was Lana. They haven't been friends in a long time, it's true, but Lana's the cause of their permanent division. She's the one who made their adversarial relationship irreversible. So, basically, Clark and Lex both forgot the wise old adage, bros before hoes. Like I said, though, it's not not only permanent between Lex and Clark now. It's permanent. Because of that, Lex pays Linda Lake a visit and basically gives her a side job. He tells her to hand over everything she can find about Clark and Lana. That's how Linda ever got on Clark's trail in the first place. That's Lex's response to what Clark said to him in the library. Clark's response, though, is much different. He originally went to Luther Mansion to... I don't know. Something. I don't... I don't think even he had much of a plan when he first showed up there, but whatever his plan was, Lex telling him that Lana's carrying his own baby took the wind right out of Clark's sails. We've seen Clark get cold feet when it comes to Lana. Push comes to shove, he just doesn't trust her with his secret. I'm going to come back to that a little bit more later, but this is the first time that we see Clark give up on Lana because of life. Lex said that Lana's pregnant. How could that not fuck Clark's day up? This is the first time an external force has affected the way that Clark sees Lana, what he thinks of her. It's not just the fact that she knocked boots with Lex either. I mean, that's bad enough, but the fact that she's pregnant. Man, what a punch in the balls. The scene in the barn with Lana and Clark has no music. It's just the two of them talking. Smallville used to pride itself on ending episodes with Lana and Clark talking in the barn while a pop song plays in the background, but those were the old days. They were kids. They're adults now, and this is real life. And right now, Lex has said the only girl that Clark's ever been completely intimate with is carrying his child. If you can say that that wouldn't bother you, Well, fuck you, I don't believe it. Another thing that works for me about Hydro is Lois going after Green Arrow. Lois caught up, uh, Lois caught him lurking around Oliver Queen's apartment back in rage, which I talked about in the last retrospective episode. And so it makes sense to me that she'd pursue him. That leads to her suspecting Oliver's the Green Arrow. He's got a wound in the same place the Green Arrow does. Lois is sharp enough to know that it's circumstantial evidence so she decides to go looking for hard proof. So, basically this is Lois trying to prove that she knows a superhero's secret identity. Gee, why does that sound familiar? Lois eventually gets cold feet though because she's really into Oliver and doesn't want to screw this up. But, Clark calls bullshit on the whole thing. He says that This will always stay with her. Her best bet is to find out for sure if Oliver is the Green Arrow. Lois, first, acknowledges that Clark knows her so well, and second, she says that she hates it. Which is interesting, but she agrees to his plan anyway, which is even more interesting. So, anyway, Clark pretends to be the Green Arrow and takes down the thugs who attacked Lois and Jimmy. After it's over, Lois kisses the green arrow because she thinks that the green arrow is Oliver. But I guess women have radar for this sort of thing because she realizes that she's not kissing Oliver. But the part that really gets me is that Lois didn't know that she was kissing Clark, but Clark knew that he was kissing her. And he liked it and Lois loved it. Again, maybe I'm reading between the lines a little too much here, but people want to say that Lois and Clark never really started bonding with each other until much later on. The more I watch and analyze these older shows, the less I believe that. Anyway. So, Jimmy tells Chloe all about it later. All on her own, she figures out that Clark was pretending to be Green Arrow. The only reason he'd do that is protect is to protect the real Green Arrow's identity, which must be Oliver Queen. In other words, Chloe put the pieces together on her own and figured out Oliver's secret identity. And this is major. A lot of important story issues come out of this later on down the line. Clark intentionally left Chloe out of the Green Arrow's secret identity back in Arrow, the episode Arrow. So she worked all this out all on her own. Again, this is big. Chloe knowing that Oliver is the Green Arrow will be absolutely essential in seasons to come. It may not seem that way right now. If you're watching the series along with me as I go through these retrospectives, you may not be fully cognizant of that. But trust me, this is fucking huge. After this, um, or rather, after that, there's this really neat scene at the Talon where Chloe makes Lois retell the story. She makes she makes sure to interrupt once in a while to needle Clark about it. And I've mentioned that season six is Smallville's shippiest season, right? Anyway, something else is that Chloe's sick and tired of being everybody's mother confessor. Everybody comes to her with Secrets, and she's supposed to keep them, but then she gets ripped up by everybody else when it comes out that she's keeping somebody else's secrets. She's been stuck in the middle of this whole messy Lex-Lana-Clark triangle for a long time now. She was in on it pretty much from the ground floor, and she's kept her mouth shut about everything when she can. It's been a big pain in the ass for her, but she's been the best friend that she possibly can be to everyone. And it's obvious that Clark had never really thought about it like that. He thinks nothing of involving Chloe in missions to foil nuclear strikes on the town of Smallville and then expecting her to to keep her mouth shut about it, but then turns around and tears her apart for keeping Lana's secrets from him. If you want to get really literary here, you could think of this as the counterpoint to Clark's scene with Lex. When Clark went to, to Luther Mansion, he and Lex ripped each other up on a personal level and it cemented them as enemies. Lana's the catalyst for destroying Lex and Clark's friendship. During the scene with Clark and Chloe at the Talon, Lana hits Clark with all the bullshit that I just laid out a second ago, and it reminds him of why they're such good friends in the first place. In this case, Lana's the unwitting bonding agent for Clark and Chloe's friendship. It's just an interesting reversal, that's all I'm saying. Speaking of Chloe, though, She and Lana have a scene where they cook up a way to get back at Linda Lake for all the trouble that she's causing. I'll come back to that scene later on, though. What's telling here is that their little scheme almost backfires. Chloe's linked up with Chloe through a... through a... sorry, Chloe's linked up with Lana through a webcam. She finds Linda's next big story, but gets interrupted when Linda herself comes in. They talk trash to each other a little bit, but... Chloe kills Lana's webcam before Linda blurts out that Clark's an alien. Still, this is the start of something huge. Lana didn't hear everything, but she heard enough. She already knows that Clark has at least one major secret, but probably several others. One for sure, though. But it's news to her that Chloe's apparently in on it. Lana's not an idiot. She knows Chloe killed the webcam to keep her from hearing whatever secret that Linda discovered. And this is not a meaningless plot development that goes nowhere. Major shit comes out of this. Like I said, Lana's not stupid. She knows that something's rotten in Denmark. Hey,
1: you took off early last night. You okay? Okay. I just keep running what happened through my head. Lana. You can't blame yourself. It wasn't your fault. That part I'm pretty clear on. Look, nobody wanted to see her die. But if you hadn't come when you did, it would have been my obit on the front page.
0: Maybe. Of
1: Section D. (laughs) Anyway. Um, thank you. Again. How do you do that? Just brush it under the rug as if nothing happened? Lana, Linda wasn't the first freak of nature who went psycho. No. I mean, whatever it is you're protecting about Clark. I don't know what talking about. Yes, you do. Some secret about a farm boy? Made you take a hammer to a computer before I could hear the rest. Come on, Chloe, I'm not that naive. Whatever it is you two have been hiding, do you really expect me to keep looking the other way? Linda was grasping at straws. She's always desperate for her next story. You know that better than anyone. Lana. I would never do anything to hurt you.
0: That's what Clark always says. And... What's interesting here is that this isn't necessarily suggested to be a good thing. The lighting on Lana's face is dark and uneven. She's bathed in shadows and starts off the scene sitting in Chloe's chair at the planet. The music's slow and a little ominous. This all suggests that Lana closing in on Clark's secret is real. But it may not be a good thing. Lana discovering the truth isn't necessarily a positive development. It might be, but not necessarily. Needless to say, there will be a lot more to add here later on down the line. In the here and now, though, like I said earlier, Lana accepts Lex's marriage proposal, and Clark and Chloe's secret is probably the main reason why. Again, this ties back to Lex and Lana's relationship being almost totally founded upon Clark Kent. And it raises an interesting question. If Clark wasn't part of the equation, if Lex and Lana had met each other independently of Clark, would they have loved each other? Would they have even acknowledged one another's existence? Stuff to say. All we know for sure is that Lex and Lana's relationship is founded upon bitterness, confusion, regret, pain, jealousy, and tons of other shit that's all related right back to Clark Kent. In fact, you could probably argue that genuine affection for, for one another is probably bottom on the list for both of them. Anyway. This next bit's meaningless trivia, but here it is anyway. It's probably interesting only to me, but a friend of mine, or at least a friend that I used to have, lives in Vancouver. And she told me that it was pretty common to see different TV shows and movies and stuff that were being shot in the downtown area. And she told me a story about the second Fantastic Four movie where she saw Jessica Alba wearing a wedding dress or something from her office building. Now. It's been ages since I actually saw Fantastic Four 2, so I have no real clear recollection if Storm gets married in that movie or or what, but you get the idea. She'd see shit like that all the time. Same thing with Smallville. She said there was a time when they were shooting all over the place in Vancouver, and she told me specifically a, a story about Hanging around outside a coffee shop, watching the Smallville crew shoot a scene with Allison Mack and Kristen Kruk outside, uh, sitting outside together, outside of a, a, coffee sh- a, a coffee shop across the street from her office building. The crew had a lot of trouble with the scene, though, and it actually took my friend a second to figure out the problem. The crew would start shooting the scene, and then it would just stop for no reason. And then Tom Welling, the director of the episode, had come out and asked just why the fuck they keep cutting in the middle of the scene, and nobody knew why. My friend eventually figured it out. Some troll would wait at the end of the street until the scene was... uh, basically until the scene got started shooting again. Then he'd drive uh, drive by in his truck, stick his head out the window, and then holler, Cut! If you hadn't guessed... She was talking about the scene with Chloe and Lana where they, they talk about Linda Lake, Daily Planet Columns, Clark, and all that other stuff. Anyway, all in all, for being such a supposedly worthless episode, a lot of important stuff is going to come out of Hydro. Specific ideas and plot threads and, and other leftovers from Hydro are going to come back in The Sainted Season 7, Season 8, And the fingerprints of this episode are all over the place in season 10. But hey, something something Tori Spelling, right? Anyway, episode 11, Justice. This is where the Justice League of America begins. Justice is one of the most hyped episodes of Smallville's entire run. Up to this point, some of the more hyped episodes have been the pilot... Vortex, Rosetta, Relic, Crusade, Arrival, Reckoning, all of them had huge marketing pushes. But really, justice is in a class all by itself, and there's a good reason for that. Goff and Miller went into season six with justice in mind. They planned time for Alan Richson, Kyle Gallner, and Lee Thompson Young to free up their schedules in order to do justice. Obviously, Tom Welling and Justin Hartley were already done deals. See, Goff and Miller learned their lesson from the dreaded Season 4. That year had tons of horrible things happen. And several of them weren't even Goff and Miller's fault. For example, who could have possibly guessed that Kyle Gallner would have scored a recurring role on Veronica Mars that'd keep him busy for the next year and a half? But they weren't going to take that risk this time. Nope. With season six, Goff and Miller evidently decided to cover all their bets and get those actors scheduled as soon as possible. And it paid off. Bart, Victor, and AC all have their respective histories with Clark. And it's interesting that each of them have different relationship, relationships with Clark. Bart sees Clark as a quasi-older brother. Clark is Victor's guardian angel. To AC, Clark's one of the few real peers that he's ever met. Point is, though, that it's, not, it's really not at all unthinkable that they'd be interested in seeing Clark again and joining, joining forces to save one of their own. The other thing, though, is that it's very telling that Clark hasn't kept up with any of them, while Oliver made it his business to seek him out. And it speaks to how differently Clark and Oliver see their duty. The hero gig is something that Clark just does. He doesn't necessarily view it as a calling. He just does his best to help people when he can. It's not at all accurate to say that he's diligently working to save the world. At least, not consciously so. Yeah, he's serious about taking down all of the zoners, but that's because he made that mess. It's his duty to clean it up. A guy like Clark isn't going to necessarily keep in touch with other would-be superheroes that he meets. Ships in the night, man. Ships in the night. But Oliver is serious about saving the world, and he can't do it alone. He needs help. How he came across Bart, AC, and Victor is open to speculation, but he clearly sought him out and invited him to join his team. Oliver needs more soldiers in his army. Plus, Victor, Bart, and AC can all do things that he can't. He can support his teammates while also funding the team's missions. A guy like Oliver is naturally gonna keep tabs on who can best help him save the world. It's it's just interesting to compare Clark to Ollie in this case. That's all I'm saying. Going back to Bart for a minute, though, it's pretty interesting that he enjoys hanging around the Kent farm. I mean, like I said, he's got a sort of older brother in Clark, and he obviously appreciates all of Martha's maternal qualities. In a weird kind of way, Bart is pretty much what Clark could have been under other circumstances. He's the street kid with no family and nobody to look after. He doesn't... He doesn't envy Clark, exactly, but he definitely understands what he's missed out on. And he and Martha have a quick little scene where Bart pretty much clears out the entire kitchen. And it's just just a neat little moment, you know? Another interesting bit of business here is more Clark and Lionel's... I don't know. It's not a partnership, exactly. And it's definitely not a mentorship, but... They've become colleagues, somewhat. Lionel watches Clark's back several times throughout the course of Justice as an episode. He tips Clark off about Bart breaking into Luther court facilities, and then he later covers for him, that is to say Clark, when Lex suggests that Clark was part of the Ridge facility's destruction.
1: If terrorists like Green Arrow are recruiting people with abilities, the only way to protect freedom and democracy is to fight fire with fire. Freedom and democracy? Well, well, I hadn't realized your goals were quite so lofty. Well, there's a lot that escapes your attention in your declining years, Dad, but not mine. The security footage from the Ridge facility was destroyed. However, several guards described one of Green Arrow's men as someone that sounded remarkably like Clark Kent. Clark? Impossible. A word that always seems to pop up when talking about him, doesn't it? Lex, it was not Clark. How can you be so sure? Because I was having dinner
0: with him last night when all this happened. Martha made pot roast with new potatoes and tiny little baby carrots. It was delicious. Clark Clark had three helpings. Don't worry, son. You still have plenty of enemies out there plotting your downfall. What we're seeing here is the latest in a growing list of occasions when Lionel Luther sided against his own flesh and blood in order to protect Clark's secret. And understand guys, there's no real gain in this for Lionel. Strictly speaking, it shouldn't be any skin off his nose whether Clark gets caught or not. So the fact that Lionel has Clark's back even when there's nothing in it for him should tell us something about the extent of his redemption over the course of the past few seasons. In fact, now's not a bad time to take stock of where things stand with Lionel in general. But before we get into that, I need a sip off of my Dr. Pepper. Ah, yeah, that felt good. All right. As I've said before, Lionel's undergone a sort of two-stage redemption here. It started out in transference from The Dreaded Season 4 where Lionel's soul basically touched Clark's soul thanks to the crystal of water transferring Lionel's consciousness into into Clark's body and then vice versa. The process gave Lionel a completely new outlook on life. This changed Lionel's soul. The process continued in in commencement also from The Dreaded Season 4 when that self-same crystal of water zapped Lionel, loaded him up with all kinds of kryptonian data and oh yeah, made him Jor-El's vessel. This gave Lionel a mission. Strange to think both of these both of these things happened during the dreaded season 4 because going's on with Lionel is one of the very few positive things to come out of that horrible godforsaken season. In any case though, Lionel was given purification as well as a new life's mission, thanks to the Crystal of Water and Jarell. Keep in mind though, Lionel still has his free will. He still has his instincts. There'll always be a temptation for him to go back to his old ways. But he never does. At least, not completely. We're at a point in Smallville where we've mostly only seen Lionel at his very best. But pretty soon, we're going to see that Lionel Luther's perpetually struggling against his own darkest temptations. In the moment of truth, he makes the right decision. But his journey to that decision can be loaded with inconsistencies and a natural inclination toward darkness. A lot of Lionel's darker tendencies can be mostly chalked up to his ongoing struggle within himself. He knows what the right thing to do is. He even wants to do the right thing, but there'll always be that pull toward the dark side. He never completely surrenders to it, but at the same time, he never completely abandons it either. There's a lot more to be said for and about Lionel Luther, but they go far beyond what the dreaded season four is all about. Suffice it to say, though, that nearly all of Lionel's actions have had an ultimately benevolent edge to them ever since the end of transference from the dreaded fourth season going right on through to right now here in the, the sixth season, Smallville's shippiest season. His methods are sometimes harsh, but he generally has good intentions, and that counts for something. And, to tie it all back to Justice, we see Lionel taking sides against his own son in order to protect Clark. Even though, on the surface, there's nothing for Lionel to gain from it. All in all, Justice is a very plot-driven episode, and I think it would be fair to say that it wears its purpose on its sleeve. Obviously, there's something here to analyze, but. Not as much as other episodes. It's just a damned fun ride. But most interestingly of all, the plot of Justice gave each character something important to do. Each member of the Justice League of America has a unique job that only he can do. Victor disarms the security system. AC sneaks in through the waterway. Oliver sets up the bombs, and Clark rescues Bart from Lex's trap. Too often you hear people claim that it's difficult, borderline impossible really, to put this many characters on a team together, because any one of them should be able to do everything all by himself. But here we see, we not only see Steve tonight do that very thing, he shows how it's to be done. You create multiple objectives so that each character has his own little moment. In the strictest sense, Justice doesn't immediately relate to the season arc about the zoners. But that subject is touched on a few times, most notably when Clark passes on a a chance to join in on on another Justice League of America adventure in order to continue hunting zoners. In many ways, it's logical for the team to split their focus. Yeah, 33.1 is a threat to the world, but then again, aren't the zoners a threat to the entire world too? The whole point of having a team is that different members can fulfill different objectives at the same time. All I'm saying is I buy Clark's reasons for not wanting to join in. Divide and conquer. So, Justice, it solidified the shared universe that Smallville had already established and it also served as the first team-up of superheroes in live-action. Thanks for showing up six years late, Avengers movie. Now, here's where my notes originally ended, but it occurred to me that there's material here to talk about that would fill out not only goings-on before and after Justice, but also stuff that relates to future seasons. It's not spoiler stuff either, because all this stuff was released before or near the time of Justice. Basically, through this whole retrospective that I'm working my way through, I've never actually talked about tie-in media. And I don't mean the Smallville comic book stuff either. I mean actual canon stuff like the Chloe Chronicles, the Vengeance Chronicles, and all that other stuff. The reason for that is because most of it seemed tangential to Smallville, but the media tie-ins from season six are different. They really do contribute something I think that's really huge to the story it doesn't get filled in anyplace else. Nevertheless, it ties a lot of shit from previous and future seasons together. Now, way back when I was talking about Forever, from the dreaded season four, I mused over the fact that, in the end, it comes, comes down, down to a face-off between Lex, Lex and Jason, Jason, and there's an interesting exchange between the two of them. <laughs>
1: Lex! Don't do this! Don't do this! Come on, look at me. Look at me. You and I, we're not that different. It was never about you and me. It was about our parents. Please, Lex, please! I always knew I had to protect Lana from you. but not as much as you've been protecting your best friend. Huh? Clark? Clark doesn't have anything to do with this. Oh, you don't believe that. Clark's more connected to this than any of us. You just choose to ignore it. I mean, think about it. The symbols burned into the kid barn, the fields. It's a little late and obvious to be shifting the blame in the 11th hour. Can't you see what's right in front of your
0: face, Lex? It's Clark. He's... And then I said... I've got a theory here. For reasons I'll get into some other time, I think Jason and Genevieve had some idea about Clark's true origins. Maybe not everything, but they had the big picture. But before Jason could say too much...
1: Lionel shot him.
0: Understand. Lex's life wasn't in danger at that moment. Lex had the upper hand. Jason was stalling for time so that Lex wouldn't bash his brains out with that tree branch. But Lionel shot Jason anyway. Why? To silence him. Jason couldn't be allowed to spill the beans to Lex. What did Lionel kill Jason to protect, you might ask? Well, that's spoiler stuff. We'll have to read between between the lines on a lot of stuff, but but we we can can make make some guesses. We're gonna gonna revisit this later on. Well, now it's later on. No matter what you may believe to the contrary, no matter what you may think of what's still to come, it's not a spoiler to say that there's a connection between some of the families we've seen on Smallville up to now. Specifically, the Swan, Teague, Luther, and Queen families all have a common link. The dreaded season four started setting this all up. It clearly showed some kind of connection between the Teague and the Luther families. Lionel obviously knew Genevieve from some kind of prior association, but that's it. For the longest time, that was all we had to work with. The Teague and Luther families somehow knew each other, but that's it. Starting here in Season 6, though, all that began to change. The Oliver Queen Chronicles, which is to say the series of tie-in animated shorts, show Robert Queen meeting with Bridget Crosby from the dreaded Season 4. He says that he doesn't trust somebody anymore. Bridget says that she'll pass that along to Virgil Swan. Later, there was another media tie-in for Season 6 called Justice and Doom. It was more specific about who the members of Dr. Swan's little group, uh, group members were. It was a group made up of Virgil Swan, Bridget Crosby, Robert and Laura Queen, Edward and Genevieve Teague, and Lionel Luther. They were originally part of a group, a secret society organized and led by Dr. Virgil Swan. The complete story wasn't revealed right away, but for sure, Dr. Swan assembled the group to protect the world from some type of invasion. A major part of this called for Luther Corp's expertise in genetic engineering. They were supposed to build an army made up of people with superhuman abilities. The Teagues were responsible for decoding the meaning of symbols and recovering artifacts that have been scattered all across the world. As best I can tell, the Queens were responsible for the group's security and protecting all of their research. Meanwhile, Swan used his own satellites to monitor space for anything that looked threatening. In one fell swoop, this secret group explained the Luther family's connection to the Teagues and retconned previously non-existent relationships to the Swans and the, and the Queens. Remember way back in Legacy from The Mighty Season 3? Lionel has, he's got a scene with Dr. Swan. Now, you could infer that that was the first time those two characters ever met, but guys, that's not absolute. You could interpret their dialogue a lot of ways, but it really isn't all that difficult to read into the scene a very good possibility that Lionel and Dr. Swan had known each other for years. They clearly didn't think anything about violating one another's privacy. They meet in absolute secret, and hell, they never even bother introducing each other, or themselves, to each other. It's just not hard to interpret that scene as a reunion as opposed to an introduction. Call it a retcon if you want, but it's a retcon that stands up to scrutiny. There's more to this group's mission, though. A lot more. but. That all relates to future seasons. It would be a spoiler to talk about that stuff here, but early on it's clear that Goff and Miller had their eye on the link between the Teague and Luther families going back to the dreaded season four. They may have even known that the link included Dr. Swan, in which case the origin of this group goes back to at least the mighty season three. In fact, I don't think it's out of the question at all that Goff and Miller could have had this idea back in season two. Now there's not much to support that theory, but at the same time there's really nothing to rule it out either. Justice and Doom unified a lot more than just those families though. The concept of this secret society unified other things like the Ezra Small Prophecy website from Smallville season two. The Kowachi Cave paintings, Isabel the Witch from The Dreaded Season 4, and probably other shit I'm forgetting about, too. It also brought Martian Manhunter deeper into the story before he was properly introduced on the show. So, all in all, Justice and Doom was pretty high-concept stuff for tie-in media that most people would probably ignore. But, honestly, the amount of stuff that it reveals about the Smallville mythos is a kind of serious mindfuck when you really start thinking about it. Anyway, that's probably not a bad place to leave it for this week, Kitty. so uh, come back next week when I discuss the episodes Labyrinth, Crimson, Trespass, and Freak. See you next week.
1: Movies, TV, comics, music, Pop Culture Affidavit has it all. It's everything random in the world of popular culture, and it's all covered by me, Tom Panneries. New episodes drop monthly at 2TrueFreaks.com, and be sure to check out blog posts about random pop culture topics at PopCultureAffidavit.com. Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork.
0: which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled
1: T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at
0: Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to
1: shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed
0: our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental, and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18.